Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. Yeah, so the reason I was a few minutes late here, well, first after hearing Alexa vent about a teacher that she is really having some problems with, we then watched uh, the most recent episode of The Mandalorian. I had been seeing people talk about having some really nice cameos. So if you haven't watched this week's Mandalorian yet, I believe it's episode 22 of the series, it does have some delightful cameos in it. This is just my life now because my, I just recorded an episode of my other podcast in which he keeps telling me about the new season of The Mandalorian, which I have not seen. So I have not seen any of this season of The Mandalorian, so I will have to get caught up. I have been watching a show that is apropos to this podcast. We both loved the cartoon Avengers vs. Mighty's Heroes, and then it was yes. canceled prematurely after two seasons in the middle of a storyline and replaced with a show that was more kid-friendly called Avengers Assemble. And I greatly resented this and um, never watched the show Avengers Assemble in protest because I said, oh, that's just a dumb kitty show. It's not like the great Avengers vs. Mighty's Heroes. Well, then later my son was looking for a show to watch. I'm like, oh, well, you know, Jack's kid. Uh, you should watch Avengers Assemble. And he did. And I watched just parts of it over his shoulder. And I'm like, this is really good. I like this. <laughs> and... I was looking for something to work out to because I watch TV while I exercise on my elliptical runner. And I'm like, that's an action-packed show. And there's 150 episodes of it. And they're a good 24 minutes each. And that's a good workout. So I should go ahead and work out to a better assemble. Well, I finished the first season today and I have had a fantastic workout. And I have greatly enjoyed this show. Yes, it is. It does skew a little younger than Avengers vs. Maze Heroes. And is a little more inclined to standalone episodes, although there is a big bad in every season. But it's a really delightful show. I, If you were a fan of Marvel Comics, if you're a fan of, of these early years of Marvel Comics, I think that you will enjoy Avengers Assemble, which is on Disney+. Plus. Yeah, when my daughter and I had watched through Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes, we then saw that that's what followed up from it. And we both tried watching it for a little bit, but um, it didn't didn't hold our attention very much. I think one of the things that really disconcerted me was the um, visual choice of all of those weird aspect ratio changes yes. that, you know, <laughs> just completely took me out of everything. And it did feel a little bit more superficial in general. And, uh, you know, maybe we should have stuck with it, but we didn't. No, no, that's quite all right. I mean, I think that... Uh... That, you know, I just I'm looking for something to work out to. And it's a lot of fun to work out to. But, you know, yeah. it's nowhere near as good as Earth's Mightiest Heroes. So if you're if you're loving Earth's Mightiest Heroes, then this is, you know, I've just seen Earth's Mightiest Heroes a lot. And I'm looking for something new. And uh, so I'm doing this and find it surprisingly good, despite the fact that, yes, and the aspect ratio changes are quite bizarre. You know, it's a stylistic choice. And I've I've come mm -hmm. to enjoy I've come to appreciate it. Yeah, actually, I talking about like stuff that you watch on your own when you're doing things for lunches recently, I've been starting to try to watch uh, Star Trek, the original series, uh, which I've never really been able to get into before. We'll, we'll see how far I make it. I've gotten one episode in, so uh, and it seems better than I thought. But I also think that they've so-called remastered these things, and I think they redid some of the special effects, which I'm sort of of two minds on because one thing the remastering 
the remastering of the original series is just shockingly good. It really does not feel like a violation in any way. And I'm a big fan of it. I, uh, you know, I'm a huge original series fan. I've seen the, all those episodes many times. I've showed some of them to my kids. I say, go forward. I say, keep, keep going. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm enjoying it so far. And, you know, we've been watching Picard and, you know, uh, uh, Discovery and all the uh, modern Trek as well. So, um, you know, sort of getting in there a little bit more is uh, not a bad thing. Um, yeah. All right. So uh, let's go ahead and get into some actual funny books here rather yes. than uh, just space opera and science fiction. So, uh, I am doing the first one here. This is The Amazing Spider-Man, number 24, May of 1965. Spider-Man Goes Mad. And both the cover and the splash page of this issue are wonderful. Yes. As a matter of fact, this whole issue is a great one, in my personal opinion. So, on the cover, Spidey is sort of crumpling into like his hand is over his face his head is sagging uh and he's sort of lashing out at these ghostly images of sandman and vulture while the room he's in is upside down and askew at like a batman tv show angle it's just really a fantastic image there and the splash page is kind of similar although here uh, Spidey is on a psychoanalyst's couch, writhing in distress while once again seeing ghostly silhouettes of his various uh, villains. Then you see this this uh, very sad and concerned looking psychoanalyst who's wearing an earpiece conspicuously, which will um, be <laughs> yes. be important later. So this is just mighty script by Stan Lee, powerful art by Steve Ditko, a lot of lettering by S. Rosen. All right. Yes. So although nowhere near as much lettering as we will get in some of the other non-Lee scripted books this month, which have just an obscene amount of text in them. But uh, this is a perfectly normal Lee amount of lettering. Yes. We start out with Pete taking a C uh, COD. CODs are a little bit old for our t for even me and Matt, but I do remember ads on TV saying, you know, that you could um, that you could pay for things COD. It's cash on delivery, where the postman would actually show up at your house with the thing you've ordered, and then you have to actually give cash to the post postman. So a new hat for Aunt May has shown up, and Pete pays the guy, and he's. I should say, should we do a ten minute timer on this? I should do a timer. I yes. say this as we are describing that the package is a hat. I am like, hmm, I think we need a timer. <laughs> you have a 10-minute clock. It is counting down. Okay. So Pete decides that he needs to go out and make some more money because they are running low on money after paying for the COD. Then he finds a robbery, sets up his camera, comes down, does his thing, and he's like, all right, I've gotten some great photos. I'll be able to sell Jameson. And then there's Foswell. So... Foswell, once again, here in the story, he happens to run into the same thing. He wants to interview uh, Spider-Man for an article. He's like, no, I can't do that. And then he realizes that he has to throw out the film that he just took, even though it's great photos. Foswell knows that he saw Spider-Man there and did not see Peter Parker there. And so he's like, I can't I can't do this. So he goes by the uh, Daily Bugle anyway. And we have a really fun sequence with Pete trying to hide from J. Jonah Jameson because he doesn't have any good photos. And he's hiding behind Betty's desk. And she is, you know, kind of messing with him and uh, pushing his head down so he won't be seen. 
Ditko does a really nice job here of making it believable. And this is the sort of thing where, you know, it might be hard to convey that she is hiding Pete under her desk in a way where she accidentally knocked some letters off her desk. And it's excellent storytelling by Ditko where it really feels like, oh, yeah, I can see how she would accidentally knock those letters off her desk while hiding Pete. Yes. There's a little bit more about he sees another letter from Ned Leeds and he gets all upset. So then he heads out and he's like, this isn't any of my business. I shouldn't be worrying about this. J. Jonah Jameson then comes up with a new idea that he is going to get other people to talk about how bad Spider-Man is. So he goes out and has all these sort of, uh, you know, leading questions and push interviews, as it were, about what a menace Spider-Man is. Uh, and people are, you know, doing what they're told to do because they want to be in the paper, basically. Yeah, uh, it's very, and- very funny here. It's like, why do you, so it says, I'll get your answer on tape. Why do you hate Spider-Man? A nice young lady says, but I never said I do hate Spider-Man. He says, look, do you want your name and picture in the paper or don't you? And she says, well, give me a minute. I'll think of some reason, which is <laughs> a nice bit of social satire of the way news is generated, especially, say, Fox News is generated. And it is nice, sharp social satire from Dick Owen Lee. So, uh, of course, Flash Thompson at one point comes up and gives the reporter what for, for, you know, doing this dishonest interviewing. So I guess that it just happens to be that Pete and Liz Allen are nearby where Flash Thompson just did this. They're talking and he's going to help her study. And then Flash sees them and he's like, oh, I'm going to prove that I'm the one that she wants. And she has clearly really transferred her allegiance from Flash to Pete at this point. Oh, yeah. And is really just rubbing Flash's face in it, too, in this case. Jameson's plan is going well. Everybody is hating Spider-Man because everyone thinks everyone else hates Spider-Man. And then this European psychiatrist comes in and uh, into the bugle and says, hey, I've seen all this stuff about Spider-Man that you've been putting putting in your paper. I think that he is really about to crack up, about to have a mental breakdown because of his psychological problems and what he does about dressing up and pretending to be another person and all this sort of stuff. So Jameson just thinks this is fantastic. It's like, wow, medical opinion that this guy is literally mentally ill. This is wonderful. So then he's going to go print an extra. Uh, It comes out. Pete starts doubting himself. He's like, wow, this is a this is an actual psychiatrist who's saying that I've got these problems and, you know, maybe maybe I am having some problems. I don't it's, know. This reminds me of Miracle on 34th Street, where the young employee of Macy's is convinced that he has some sort of complex by the yes. staff psychiatrist. And then Chris Kringle finds out that, you know, he's convinced this innocent young employee that he's got some sort of deep seated neurosis. And goes to confront him and bashes him with his cane. And that's, you know, that is the big I guess so. Yes. Yes, indeed. Pete shakes Flash off his tail by using his spider signal, which once again, the spider signal never made any sense to me whatsoever. But uh, he's able to distract Flash with that in order to get him off his tail. We then see a conspicuous black cat near Spider-Man as he's swinging around, followed by he starts hallucinating that Doc Ock is attacking him. Now, they make, they, they make it clear that it says, I've never known him to move so silently, so noiselessly, like a jungle cat. So he's not making any sound whatsoever. And then Doc Ock just seems to disappear. 
And then the same thing happens with Sandman uh, showing up under his feet. Then he tries to attack Sandman and he disappears. Again, we see the black cat. Not un- not, uh, not uncoincidental. We then, he's starting to really worry. He f- swings off elsewhere and we once again see a bat. Again, not coincidentally. Uh, or not in coincidence. Anyway, one way or the other. <laughs> it's, it's significant. Uh, and then we see uh, Spider-Man thinks he's being attacked by the vulture. Once again, it's completely silent. And then the vulture disappears. So at this point, Pete really is in pretty severe distress and anxiety. And he goes back to his home. Then Aunt May walks in and he is just like, I can't, you know, I, I can't deal with her right now. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid I might be crazy. So he just bolts out the front door without even saying anything to her, leaves the door open, just runs. And really she, fantastic art and colors on page 12 of uh, Pete. You know, we get, again, beautiful Ditko cityscapes, as we'll see in Doctor Strange as well, of Spider-Man running along the roofs of New York City at night. And then his scenes of just being in utter mental turmoil at his house are really evocative from Ditko. And then there's a great close-up of he's colored red as he uh, is staring directly into the panel and freaking the hell out. And uh, very effective. Yes. Spider- Apparently, they had published the psychiatrist address in the paper because back in these days, doxing was not a thing because you couldn't just, you know... <laughs> yeah, it was much it was much harder to harass and stalk people back then. So uh, and as you notice in the letters pages and all these things, they always give the address of whoever wrote <laughs> these days are just be like, oh, it's not a good idea. So uh, nope. but he has the address. So he goes to Dr. Reinhardt's house and the doors open and he walks in and then he sees another door open at the end of the hallway and he walks over there and opens it and everything's upside down. He walks in and and Spider-Man is now on the ceiling and the doctor is, you know, upside down, you know, uh, and the the panel that that, uh, Steve Ditko draws here is just fantastic, especially. uh, And I guess I don't know whether you should um, which of the three primary creators you should give credit to for the upside down word balloons that the psychiatrist is speaking. But it really just kind of gets that disorienting quality of the upside down room across. And of course, it's a problem for me reading these comics on an iPad where it's impossible (laughs) to read upside down text on an iPad because every time you try turning your iPad upside down, then the image flips. And uh, it's always, always annoying to me when I have to read upside down text when I'm trying to read on an iPad. So, and I will point out that there is a piece of modern art, looks like maybe a Juan Miro uh, on the wall back there. I bring that up because that's going to be part of the details that are um, that are going to come up in a little bit. The doctor then tries to chase Spider-Man out, you know, chase Spider-Man down. I don't know exactly how he gets down from his chair nailed to the ceiling in order to run after Spider-Man, but he somehow is able to pull it off. Um, and then Spider-Man runs out and he now gets into a waiting room, which is also upside down. And, well, they make uh, it clear. They never say this in the dialogue, but it's clear from the visuals later on that yes. the rooms are actually on tracks that can flip around. So I assume right. he flips the entire room around and then just gets out of his chair. Well, which must be yeah. nailed down, but somehow he gets out of his chair and goes and finds Spider-Man. Yeah, so there are duplicate rooms that can slide back and forth and be behind the same door, and it also oh, looks as though there's a there's gimbal. Your timer. 
Uh, it also looks as though there's a gimbal that can rotate things around. Anyway, but, we'll get to that. The thing is that doesn't make any sense is that in these rooms that are being turned upside down and flipped around, there is a boa of there is specifically showed that there is a boa of fish. And you would think like, OK, somehow, I mean, it would take I mean, let's go ahead and reveal the <laughs> ending of the issue. This is Mysterio and this is Mysterio doing all these things. And you would think like it's just he's just showing off if he's having, you know, an actual bowl of goldfish that can turn upside down and turn right side up. But you would think at very least the fish inside the gold bowl, the goldfish bowl would not uh, would not turn would not be turned the right way. But anyway, it's like, oh, that goldfish is dead. It's upside down. Uh, the, the reason I pointed out that modern art earlier is that then when he brings Spider-Man back into the right side up version of that room, that exact same piece of modern art is above the couch, um, yeah. which I, is a nice touch just to make it be clear that anyway. Uh, so then the uh, psychiatrist is talking to him uh, through his distress and is about to get him to finally start psycho psychoanalysis and, you know, give up his secrets. Meanwhile, Foswell has investigated this guy and figured out that he is not who he says he is. And Jameson is afraid that this is going to, uh, you know, backfire on him badly. So he runs out. Uh, we have a funny situation where he happens to run into uh, Flash Thompson, <laughs> who then is chasing after him, trying to harass him about harassing Spider-Man. Yeah, it's a funny sequence. Yes, Jameson runs into the psychiatrist's house himself, and right as Spider-Man is about to give up his secret identity, Jameson bursts in and ruins the whole thing. Then the special effects that Mysterio is using start malfunctioning. There are these lights that are shining everywhere. Uh, there's a you know chase through the upside down rooms, and then we rip off the of course lifelike mask. Uh, and find the ugly dude who is Mysterio. He then explains how he did it. And yeah, there are, like you were saying, rooms that are on like conveyor belts to where you can have two different versions of the room be behind the same door. And down at the bottom right, you see a thing that looks like a gimbal. Um, and then uh, he's also talking about how the bat and the cat were both projecting things. J. Jonah Jameson recognizes at this point that because he burst in at that exact moment, Spider-Man is not ruined. And yeah. uh, But for J. Jonah Jameson, he would have been. And Flash is still here for all this, and he just thinks this is awesome. <laughs> it's like, hey, it was me. I chased him in here. I did it. Oh, yeah, it's interesting who ends up being the hero and the villain of this issue. Like, you know, first of all, number one hero of this issue, Frederick Foswell, who exposes the fake Mysterio therapist and brings the evidence to Jameson. Second hero is Jameson himself, who instantly realizes, like, I'm going to take down this guy now that I know he's a fraud. Third hero, Flash Thompson, for trying to, you know, stand up to the funny reporter and standing up to Jameson and chasing him here and accidentally bringing everything down. Actual Spider-Man, not in the top five of <laughs> heroes of this issue. No, <laughs> yeah. no, he's really not. He just sort of lucks out that the whole plan falls apart before he reveals his identity. Yes. So we then have a final scene where Pete is talking to May and May is clearly worried about him. And uh, he's trying to reassure her that he's feeling better at this point. Then he and Liz go off to study. And there's this panel where Liz is thinking, I'm making progress at last. I finally have Petey all to myself for a while. He's so much more interesting than that empty-headed Flash. And Pete, meanwhile, is thinking, 
I'd rather be spending my time with Betty. But if she's going to keep on writing to Ned Leeds behind my back, I'll show her. I'm like, ah, healthy relationship. (laughs) And also, if you're secretly going on a date with another girl and you were in no way letting Betty know about this, then you are, in fact, not showing her. You were very much not showing her. You were, in fact, hiding from her the fact that you are secretly dating other girls. So uh, (laughs) I don't think you get the points that you think you're going to get here. I think you're just a cad. Cad? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, he, he's a he's a high school teenage boy, you know, yeah. like, he has a lot but, to learn. The one like last a- thing I'm going to mention about about this is on page five, it looks like Foswell and J. Jonah Jameson are brothers. Uh, they're yes. both holding their smoking implements and looking pretty much exactly the same. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I like how they make it clear that Wiz isn't the right girl for Pete. You know, because yeah. she keeps calling him PD. It's I think it's so sweet of you to offer to help me, PD. And he's like smiling to her, but he's thinking, "Yeesh, I wish you wouldn't call me PD." And then she right. calls him PD again later in the page to really drive home the fact that like he knows this that Betty is a better woman for him, and Liz is you know a poor substitute. And then of course soon they will both be shown the back burner, and <laughs> two other even more promising women will enter. Peter's life sometime in the next 10 issues. For now, he is still sort of stuck with these two, these two less than ideal love interests. Yes. Uh, by the way, did you notice the uh, letter from a future Marvel Comics creator in this issue? No, I did not. I, Donald oh, McGregor of Warwick, Rhode Island. Yes, Don McGregor, who would go on to be a great writer of Black Panther and many other books. Yeah, that is great. So, uh, yeah, it's just it really is amazing to find how many future writers and artists wrote letters into this stuff. And and not just they wrote letters, but that their letters were picked. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because I'm sure they receive all sorts of letters that, you know, most of them just end up getting read and then thrown in the trash. But, yeah, it just is amazing how many people who later worked for Marvel who got their letters published. OK, let's see if there's anything I want to add here. Well, I guess one reason that. Mysterio had a bunch of fishbowls in his fake thing was one to show off his special effects and the other thing because he usually wears a fishbowl on his head and he's <laughs> you know missing the fact that he no longer gets to wear a fishbowl on his head. <laughs> and yeah, I like the text at the end of the issue where it says, nothing conclusive has been settled between Peter and Betty or between our hero and Flash Thompson or indeed between anyone. And yet, isn't that the way of life? And so they're uh, (laughs) acknowledging that uh, everything's up in the air. But yes, I think this is an excellent issue. It's really beautifully drawn by Penciled and Inked by Ditko and nicely written by Lee and Ditko. And, you know, I don't know if it's so much of an Ayn Rand thing to have to be anti-psychotherapy. You know, obviously, that's, you know, more we associate with Scientology or various other things. But yeah, I get the feeling, I certainly don't think Dicko would naturally be a fan of therapists, and this is not the first time that therapists have been portrayed unflatteringly in a Spider-Man comic, or for that matter, in a Doctor Strange comic. One certainly gets the impression Dicko is not a fan of the profession. Well, I, I think that, you know, if you're if you're relating it back to Randian stuff, the whole idea that A is A, that basically things are what they are. And that, you know, psychotherapy is largely talking about like, oh, well, you said this. What did that really mean? You know? Right. And uh, yeah, I could see that being a being a thing. Yeah, not a fan. Okay, everybody, let's move on to Fantastic Four number 38, the world's greatest comics magazine. Not a dream, not an imaginary tale. It had to happen sooner or later. At last, the fabulous FFR are defeated by the Frightful Four. So it was interesting. We had the Frightful Four show up 
in issue 36. And then they took an issue off while they went to another galaxy to defeat the Scroll Empire. And then they're back here in issue 38. And then they're going to take two more issues off. And then they're going to come back for another three issue storyline after that. So there are these very much sort of a um, irregular villains here who are showing up and then disappearing and then showing up and then disappearing. This is Fantastic Four 38. And so we begin with a bizarre thing where Reed, Johnny, and Thing are standing, and it seems like a poorly penciled or inked or colored page, because it's like, oh, this doesn't look like where are they really standing and what's going on. And then they just reveal in the text that they're standing on a giant photograph of scroll technology. And you don't realize until you get to the second page that they're standing on these giant black and white photos, which is an interesting way to begin the comic. Reed mm-hmm. then gets his hair must by Invisible Sue. And oh, let, then, let me point out, you were saying that last issue was our final issue with Chick Stone, and we get a reprieve for one more issue here. Yes. So this issue is Lee, Kirby, and Stone, and then next issue, Frank Ray will step on it. So this is the final issue of Stone. I double-checked that. I was wrong. This is the final issue of Stone. Next issue, we get Frank Ray. Then we get three terrible issues of Coletta, including, unfortunately, the annual. And then we get Joe Sinat. Joe Sinat is coming. I can't wait. But so then... <laughs> Sue, Invisible Sue, busses Reed's hair. They're all then trying to grab Sue. Ben then grabs her and spanks her, unfortunately. And uh, they are, and then they're all tossing her around. And then Johnny is like, this is getting too mushy. I am going to go. He actually sees the wizard. And then it's like, am I seeing things? Is that a man floating up there? And then the wizard's like, the torch, I must vanish fast. And gets away. So I guess the torch convinced himself he was just seeing things. The wizard goes back to the log cabin where he's been hanging out with the Frightful Four. We see which reminds me of the lo- which, which which reminds me of the log cabin the Fantastic Four were hanging out in in uh, their second issue. Yes. So when we met the Frightful Four two issues ago, I was like, you know, oh, I thought that Pacepot Pete became the trapster when he joined the Frightful Four, but he didn't. Well, now he does. So in the second appearance of the Frightful Four, Pacepot Pete says. I'm through being called Pacepot Pete. It sounded too much like a comic title. From now on, I'll be known as the Trapster. That's a name with dignity, with drama to it. And then he explains that now he's going to just use his pace to stick various devices he has onto people and injure them in various ways. And he's not mainly just going to shoot paste at people. And Madame Medusa is into it. She says, the Trapster, your new name has a thrilling ring to it. And you look most impressive in your new costume, my handsome one. She is into this. He says, thanks, Medusa. You're pretty easy on the eyes yourself. Meanwhile, the wizard starts whipping everybody around the room to remind them that he's in charge. We then cut to Sue, who is who has gone to a fashion gallery to get designs for her trousseau. So what exactly was a trousseau? Uh, I don't. I didn't look that up. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> um, Would it be your train? Maybe? No, no, no. This was something where it was like a little wicker basket that was involved in getting married. It's like, oh, I've got additional, I guess it's the clothes you change into after you change out of your wedding dress or something like that. So then Sue is supposed to get fashion designs for her trousseau. And then the fashion designer comes in, very, very chic cat's eye glasses. But it turns out, whoops, it's Medusa. And she's like, those trousseau clothes were designed by the wizard. The wizard helped me to create them. It's like the wizard. And then Medusa wraps her up in her hair and then Trapster comes in the door and wraps her up in paste. And then the wizard whisks her out of the door. We then, once again, have the news cycle moving very fast because the thing mm-hmm. finds out Sue has been kidnapped from the newspaper. Ben then goes back to find Reed, essentially searching for Sue using his 
So by then, the way, trousseau, a trousseau, the clothes, household linen, and other belongings collected by a bride for her marriage. Yes. So then he finds that Reed is using his trans-hemispheric video network, trying to search everywhere for Sue. We then cut to the Frightful Four, who have gone to a remote Pacific atoll where underground nuclear tests have recently been abandoned by a powerful Asiatic power, presumably China, I guess. Uh, I don't know if there were any other powerful Asiatic powers or nuclear powers, certainly. So then, well, I, I think that sometimes Russia was sort of thought of as Asiatic, you know, as in like we're the West and they're the East. But yeah, probably China. So then they set up Sue next to a big bomb and waiting for the Fantastic Four. But then they seemingly get tired of waiting because they go ahead and send a ship over to where Reed, Ben and Johnny are. And they are presumably in the ship. But then Johnny is trying to get in it. And then sand comes flying out and smothers Johnny. And then he gets wrapped up further in stuff when he gets inside. So the trapster, of course, has paste, but instead he's using my latest trap, asbestos tape operated by remote control. So at this point, they've already kidnapped Sue and brought her to the atoll. Now they kidnap Johnny and bring him to the atoll, finally managing to lure Reed and Ben there as well. They get in a huge fight on the atoll. Sue, there's an awesome sequence where Sue rescues herself by slipping her force fields inside her paste-bound hands um, and gradually expanding it. It's a nice sequence. And yes. they are essentially defeated by the Prideful Four, who then take off and leave them there, and then nuke the island. They nuke the atoll. And uh, I don't know if they ever specifically say it's nuclear, but they uh, basically, they nuke the atoll. They take off, and then I guess they just assume, well, that's it. The Fantastic Four are dead. Let's go on and continue on with our lives. We then cut back to the Fantastic Four who are there, and we see that they are alive because they are within one of Sue's force fields. And Ben, for some reason, has half turned back into Ben Krim. But they point out that Sue is unconscious, but she is still maintaining her force field, which is odd. Um, yeah. But uh, I didn't know she could do that. And then this seems like this I, I, huge... I don't, I, don't think that, I don't think that Stan Lee knew that either. <laughs> yes, until he learned it from Jack Kirby here. He's like, okay, Jack, I guess she can hold her force fields when she's unconscious. So you would think that this would be a massive cliffhanger where it's like, okay, let's get to the second part of this big battle or the third part of this big battle with the Prideful Four next issue. But no, next issue is a completely different storyline. We're about to have a two-parter with Dr. Doom and Daredevil. And then the Prideful Four won't be back for three issues. So that's all very strange. I think this is a perfectly fine issue. I like the Prideful Four as villains. It's nice to see them give the FF a run for their money and have a big epic fight. A very odd issue in that how these villains are coming and going and nothing conclusive is happening with them. But uh, a perfectly fine issue. Yeah, uh, I like it. One one of the things that I like about this issue, and we're going to see this going forward over the next like year, I really like how they visually portray uh, Reed and Sue and kind of the physical affection and the, you know, obvious joy they take in each other's company as they are approaching their wedding. And then afterwards, when they are newlyweds, uh, this will continue that I just something about it feels really sort of genuine to me coming off the page. Uh, yep. You know, so when she's mussing his hair and stuff and just you know, the look on his face and, you know, just the the it just seems so playful and uh, is really, really fun um, on the splash page when they introduce the trapsters as introducing 
one of the most unpredictable villains of all time. Wait till you see the Trapster. And so A, spoiler alert, it's just Pastebot Pete. B, they didn't say unpredictable. I don't know whether this is something that's in yours or not, but it says the one of the most unpredictable villains of all time. <laughs> yes, I. That looks like that looks like maybe an errant line or something. Who knows? Okay, I generally enjoyed this issue, and I guess we should move along. All right, journey into mystery number one sixteen with the mighty Thor. Uh, this is the uh, the time has come for the trial of the gods. So we've had this. Uh, oh, you want to time me here? <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, here we go. We are timing. OK, so. So. Well, all right. Now, well, I'm going to go ahead and pause the timer. So let's go ahead and talk about <laughs> the big elephant in the room here, which is that we have, to my mind, the greatest tragedy in all of Marvel Comics happens in this issue, which is that Vince Guerra becomes the anchor on the front half of this book. And will be for the next 50 issues or so. It is a tragedy. This could have been one of the all-time great Marvel runs if they had, oh my God, if they'd gotten Sinat to do this book too. Kirby, Lee Kirby Sinat doing Thor would have been the dream of all dreams. Instead, we get something that is less than one-tenth the quality of that. We have for this point, for the next 50 issues, Coletta inking Kirby, and it is just the tragedy of all tragedies. And unfortunately, it begins with this issue. Well, I will say that, in all fairness, I think Coletta seems to actually be putting in an effort on this first issue in particular. He does. If this were what Coletta was doing all the time, I'd be like, eh, he's, he's, a, he's fine, you know, but uh, it, it will not be as good at <laughs> various points. A few problems I will point out, but yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are always going to be some problems, of course. Written by Imperial Stan Lee, illustrated by impregnable Jack Kirby, so he can't be pregnant, inked by implacable Vince Coletta, lettered by impossible Artie Simak. Yes. All right. So uh, this Trial of the Gods has been built up for a while. This has to do with Thor continuing his dalliance with Jane and with Loki making Odin think that Thor is being more disobedient than he actually is. Odin takes Thor's hammer from him and sends both Thor and Loki to Skornheim. Yes. I got to this point and I'm like, is Lee just making these words up? Like, is he drawing yeah. from mythology at all for Skornheim? Yeah, I looked it up and he just made it up. Skornheim okay. was invented by Stanley in this issue. All right, good. You know, so as I said, I actually, you know, had some fondness for Coletta during the 80s when I was a kid. And I think lots of that may have been because he inked Dazzler and I was an adolescent boy reading Dazzler. And so yeah. I associated him <laughs> <laughs> with Dazzler, uh, who dazzled me. But I will say that on page three, panel two, uh, Thor's face is kind of some of the best of Coletta's uh, style right there. I, I, I really kind of like Thor's face there. I'm saying I'm, it's an aesthetic thing for me. I like that. It brings back childhood memories. But right, page so, two, on page two, Coletta has inked Odin's eyes so oddly that oh, yeah. the colorist can't figure out where the eyebrows are supposed to begin there. So he's just sort of, you know, it looks like he's just arbitrarily deciding where in that massive lines the flesh ends and the eyebrow begins. 
Yes. This uh, this challenge is they're both sent to Skornheim uh, with no weapons, and then they must make it back to Asgard, and whichever one makes it back to Asgard will now be Odin's most favored son. Of course, Loki cheated, and he brought some Norn stones with him that are essentially weapons, uh, and he's using them to his advantage. Uh, he uses one to show Thor that Jane is now being menaced by the Executioner and the Enchantress at Loki's behest, trying to distract him from what he's doing here. They get to, I don't know, a thicket of thorns, and they're thorns that are so bad that they rip your clothes apart and stuff like that. Loki uses one of his Norn stones to just pass through it like a ghost. Thor instead protects his arm and then just knocks down the thorns to be able to make a path through it. Yeah, I kind of liked how this reminded me of the movie Casino Royale where they where Bond is in a chase with uh, Goon and it shows how Bond is different from the Goon and that every obstacle they get to, the Goon gets through one day and Bond gets through another way. And I like this, you know, sort of thing of like, oh, Loki, you know, does his subterfuge type thing and then Thor blunders through. And I like that, I, that they're doing some character work and showing how they, yeah, they're different problem solving techniques. Yes. Uh, when Thor makes it through, he's mad. He catches up with Loki. They get into a fight, but then they are attacked by actually what looks like, oh, what's his name? That daredevil villain who... Uh, the gladiator. The, the gladiator. Yes, the daredevil villain, the gladiator. <laughs> but it's not. This is Yag, invincible slayer of all who intrude. We then switch back to Asgard here, and we get Odin in the bath and then wearing his bathrobe, which I, I love. I absolutely love his fuzzy bathrobe and his fuzzy slippers and yes. his fuzzy hood. He's got a he's got a fuzzy bathrobe with a fuzzy hood and fuzzy slippers, and it is awesome. This is the king. He looks yes. awesome. Odin has reached his final form, I think, <laughs> in many ways. Balder comes by and reveals to Odin, who is just always dim, dim, dim when it comes to uh, Loki, that, hey, Loki's cheating by doing this with the Executioner and the Enchantress and Jane and, you know, letting Thor know about it. And so Odin says, OK, go and protect Jane. So he heads off on the Rainbow Bridge. We meanwhile see that there is a big fight going on with Yag. Loki is, uh, what does he do? He somehow gets away, I think, just uses the, the conflict to sort of get away and then leave Thor fighting with Yag. Thor is able to defeat Yag. Once again, Thor is mainly doing all of his feats just through strength and toughness. He defeats Yag. Then there's a new another challenge they have to go through, a... Uh, the withering heat of the glowing boulder road of Skornheim. Once again, using his Norn stones, Loki is able to protect himself from the heat with some kind of little whirlwind or something. And then he gets to some carnivorous plants. He's able to repel them. In New York, Executioner and uh, Enchantress are being uh, menaced by New Yorkers. Oh, and you were saying, oh, there are going to be some things you're going to point out about Coletta's work in this. Page 12, panel 2, look at Enchantress's face. <laughs> Classic Coletta <laughs> eyes. Is, Completely unmatched eyes. I, I will say when I think he's doing something decent, I will also point out when there is an absolute trash panel, and this is one of those right here. Uh, and then it turns out that a teen brigadier happens to be up above the conflict with the executioner and enchantress 
And so goes ahead and radios to the Avengers. He's trying to contact Rick Jones and he's getting no answer. But it's because Rick Jones is in an Avengers meeting. And by the time the thing comes into him, the uh, the radio thing, he is gone. Uh, that really doesn't go anywhere. That's just sort of a weird thing. Daredevil is then pointed out to the direction of where this stuff is happening by the teen brigadier. And then he's trying to contact the Baxter building. But it makes it clear that Daredevil was in the middle of fighting Namor, that the Fantastic Four is in the middle of their battle with the Frightful Four, which also does explain a little bit why Daredevil was the one who was having to deal with Namor last time. Right? If they they're specifically showing how all the other people, all the other superheroes are busy right now. Frightful Four in this big spherical thing, they mistake this fireball that's coming down from heaven as being the human torch. But it's not. This is Balder. But at this point now, Balder shows up, disguises himself as a regular plain old New Yorker to go and confront the two evil ones. Back on Skornheim, Thor is now making it through that same arid parched desert, but once again, just through endurance and stubbornness, is making it through on his own. And then again, he just uses brute strength to go ahead and fight his way through the carnivorous plants, then gets to water. He dives into this river, and it both protects him from more of the plants and rehydrates him after being parched. At this point, Thor catches up with Loki again right as they reach the goal, which will take them back to um, Asgard, but Loki makes it through the portal first. Thor is saying, despite my every effort, he beat me, Loki, with his sinister stones, his cunning, his deceit. Loki has won. We will see what that means in the next issue. Yes. So uh, quickly then, we're going to go on to Tales of Asgard. We're once again seeing younger, but not young, so, you know, but younger Loki building up his network of evil, nefarious powers to be able to take on against Asgard one of these days. And I love the picture on the first page of Tales of Asgard yes. here of the uh, of King Hymir. He looks tough. He looks stout. He's just a big, thick rock of a dude. And his helmet is amazing. <laughs> the man is about 30% hat. His hat is about 10 times the size of his head. It is awesome. Oh, his head's pretty big. His head's pretty big, but (laughs) nowhere near as big as his hat. Yes, and it looks like that's the spine of some creature that's wrapped around the hat, and then there's a big big mound of fur and it's just amazing. Uh, Meanwhile, on the right-hand side, we see Thor clearly hitting on Princess Rinda. I mean, yes. he's got the classic leaning up against the lockers, talking to the girls sort of thing going on. But it's like, all right, you know, uh, Thor's got some game there. He's uh, he's making it work. Loki convinces King Hymir to issue, what is it, a challenge that Thor has to accept or else he loses honor. It, this is, of course, a tasks that are not meant to be actually be able to be performed. What does he okay. have to do? He, the thing that's so strange about this issue is that the lead story and the backup story are so similar. These are both stories set in Asgard yeah. where Loki presents Thor with a series of challenges that Thor then has to go to different biomes and tackle big challenges as part of some big Asgardian trial type thing. But they're both awesome. 
I think that these are both, I, that's the kind of story I want to read and I don't mind reading it twice. Yeah. You know, but it's so strange that they're so similar. Yes. Yes. Thor takes the uh, challenge and the fir- the challenge is to uh, bring back one fish from the dreaded sea of eternal darkness. So Thor does so. And then when he does, he's like, oh, I did the challenge. And King Hymir is like, oh, no, no, no. That was just the thing to see whether you're worth getting the real challenge. The real challenge is, can you break my goblet that I've got in my hand right now? Thor is finding it uh, impossible. And then so he figures out it's actually enchanted. Uh, so he's not sure what to do by the deadline. But then he throws it at um, Hymir and it shattered. It says it is Hymir's crown itself that is the magic catalyst. So when he threw the goblet at Hymir's fantabulous hat, it ends up causing the goblet to break. At this point, Loki, who was trying to get the allegiance of King Hymir for future betrayals of Asgard, King Hymir feels betrayed by Loki and starts laying into him here. Then Loki realizes that he has not succeeded this time in either defeating Thor or in gaining any uh, nefarious allies. Yes. Uh, There are elements of this Sales of Asgard I love. Hymir's whole look his hat in particular but his whole look is great but yeah you're right that that is a good point that they uh these two stories are very very similar yeah i'm just looking at uh my notes when king Hymir appears on the first page i said in my notes to quote from superman the movie yo jim <laughs> that is one bad outfit um, <laughs> this is this is just a lot of fun and and credit does not ruin either issue they both look pretty good beautifully Penciled by Kirby, both the lead and the backup, with the sort of Asgardian action I love, and both well written by Lee, and just uh, two excellent halves of this book. Just enough Jane, just enough Earth, but but mostly Asgard and Odin in his glorious robe and fuzzy slippers. <laughs> it is these and are his bath and his bath and his bath. Um, yes, these uh, are I, just uh, gorgeous books. One last thing I'll point out is at one point when Thor is trying to get through one of the challenges, it says, then reaching out with fingers like steel vices, mighty Thor rips off a fragment of petrified rock. Um. <laughs> yes, I get from the tone of your voice that you see the problem with it. It's petrified means petrified turned to stone. <laughs> this yes. is stone that has been turned to stone but you know if that's what are you gonna do this is a, <laughs> this is a stan lee comic you, you'll get these things all right let's go ahead and move on to strange tales number 132 take it away all right strange tales number 132 every month there's at least one book where i read the book and then i go back to take my notes and i'm like what is this i don't remember reading this and <laughs> in this case it is certainly the Sinister Space Trap. Wait till you see the Human Torch and the ever-loving thing get caught in the Sinister Space Trap, possibly the nuttiest, most mixed-up yarn you'll read all year. And he says it's clobbering time. And then there's a little insight that just they just lazily snipped a panel out from the Doctor Strange story and placed it on the cover. And it says, see, Doctor Strange face-to-face at last with Baron Mordo. This is an extremely bad Human Torch thing story. We know this because they say in the letters page that it is extremely bad. Um, <laughs> I don't know I didn't if, see that. if you had the letters page on this one, but they say in the letters page, well, that's it for this ish. But before we close, we want to ask you one thing. Can you figure out exactly what our Torch and Thing story was all about? We have to admit it had us pretty confused. 
We read it over and over again and never could quite understand what the villain was really after. If it wasn't too embarrassing, we'd offer no prize to anyone who could explain our own story to us. Oh, well. So... Um, <laughs> and then, and this one was written by Larry Ivy, which is the actual name of the guy whose pseudonym was used in the Avengers issue where Jan was dying and needed the surgeon. Yes. So, you know, you'd be like, oh, is Stan Lee showing a little humility and saying the story wasn't very good? Well, he didn't write it. It says, edited with Reckless Abandon by Stan Lee, written with Daring Bravado by Larry Ivy, drawn with branch impetuosity by Bob Powell, inked with Reckless Vigor by Mickey DeMeo, lettered with a soggy penpoint by Sam Rosen. Of course, Mickey DeMeo is Mike Esposito. And this issue is indeed stanley is right to talk about how terrible the issue is because it is especially terrible this is an especially awful book you know the powell esposito art is fine you know it's not great but it is not terrible but the issue is just it is exquisitely poorly written and one of the many things that is poorly written about it is just the number of words on every damn page it is <laughs> insane so we begin we see all four of the ff working together to bend some sort of I-beam into place, building something. Page two, we get the entire text of War and Peace crammed onto one page as a guy shows up from NASA and says, I need one of you to be an astronaut. Now, of course, they all four have been astronauts. That's how their whole story began. But we then go to a lot of text to explain why it has to be Johnny. Well, of course, why? Because this is Johnny's book. But they explain like, <laughs> the thing is like, well, given that I am the pilot, I should be doing it. And then Reed says, I'm afraid you to be too heavy, Ben. I think I'd better volunteer. And then the NASA guy says, you were right about the weight, Richards, but I think I'd prefer you to act as liaison. And of course, we don't want the notoriety of a girl astronaut on this particular job. <laughs> Ew, yuck. <laughs> in other, she might put cooties in our space shuttle. Says, it's, in other words, it's up to our junior firefly, but at least I can help this pipsqueak out on the groundwork, can I? I'm afraid not, Mr. Grimm. So then... Johnny is going to go be uh, the essentially like a spy, right? I mean, to to because they think that they're that one of the rocket scientists is nefarious, which of course most many of our rocket scientists actually were Nazis. But <laughs> isn't that basically what he's doing? He's like there to try to turn up the evidence that this guy with the monocle and the goatee and mustache uh, and the like combed over uh, Hitler hair is actually as evil as he's drawn. I cannot understand the story. Okay. I like Stanley could not understand the story or what the villain's motivation was. And I have the backing of none other than the great Stanley himself in giving me a pass <laughs> to not understand this story. Uh, they then meet the guy with the monocle and the goatee. They say that professor. Oh, I see. Oh, I see. It's Johnny who is going by the alias Doug Brown here. I yes. see. I thought that was the guy. Do we ever find out? Professor Jack's name. Anyway, he's just called Professor Jack. Is that a first name? Is that a last name? I don't know. Johnny is introduced to the sinister monocled scientist under a fake name. I see. And so that's why Johnny then has to cover up the fact that he's flying around as Human Torch and is then melting the wall back into place when he flies through the wall. And then Professor Jack comes in and says, what's that burning smell? And the room is a lot warmer than when I left. He's wearing his Fantastic Four outfit underneath a trench coat, but apparently the guy has not figured this out. I had not realized, okay, when I read this story twice before, that he did not know this was Johnny Storm, which is absolutely insane. Johnny checks in with Dory Evans before he leaves. She's 
upset with him, but then she goes back to the thing later and says, oh, go tell Johnny I forgive him. Ben goes there and has to save Johnny's life when a water tower almost falls on him. And then, oh my God, just so much text. On page six, so much text. I could not read it. I read the story twice. I could not follow it. Johnny goes up in his rocket ship. Thing is caught in a bunch of magnets. Johnny is orbiting the Earth and is told by Professor Jack that you have put my magnets into orbit to help me take over the Earth, and now I'm going to dissolve your ship with acid and show you on the monitor that Ben is going to be killed by my magnets. But Ben, Ben does the one thing you couldn't count on him to do when he's caught by magnets. He reaches out his arm, and that enables him to <laughs> escape. And then Johnny does the one thing you wouldn't think he could do when his ship is dissolved by acid. He lets himself fall into the atmosphere again and flames on. Either of these are things that, in fact, you could have easily predicted they would do. And they then converge on Professor Jack, and they knock him down. His monocle goes flying. By the way, the monocle comes and goes over the course of the story. Sometimes it'll suddenly disappear in the middle of the scene. And they are both very happy. And then Johnny goes back to Dory, who is happy to see him. This, as Stanley will be the first to tell you, is a truly terrible issue, and uh, it is embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's right up there with some of the worst Silver Age Marvel books. So we we probably shouldn't spend much more time on it, correct? Indeed. Um, let me see if there's anything. Oh, <laughs> I, I did think it was funny, just from an entirely juvenile point of view. Ben says, hey, I just remembered the reason I came here yesterday was to tell you your fickle gal pal wants you back. And Johnny says, hoo-ha, which, of course, <laughs> hoo-ha can be a euphemism for female anatomy. So um, Johnny is maybe revealing too much there. So let's go and go into a much better half of the book. One of the most stark differences between front and back half of the book we're ever going to read in Marvel Comics in the back, we get part three of the big Doctor Strange epic, Doctor Strange, Master of the Mystic Arts, face-to-face -face at last with Baron Mordo. So after a symbolic splash page, we have Dicko at his absolute best showing the Noirish City. Now, you would think, like, this has nothing to do with Doctor Strange. Doctor Strange is not a noir book, but it is a noir book. And as Doctor Strange arrives back in New York City in the middle of a thunderstorm, it could not be more drenched in noirish atmosphere it could not be more gorgeous is absolutely wonderful dr strange then is smart enough to go like ah before i go back into my house let me go ahead and investigate it with my spirit form to see if anybody is there waiting for me indeed mordo has taken over his headquarters and has someone there waiting for him who then senses his spirit form sends out the crimson bands of sight rack to envelop the house but strange just very at the last second manages to slip through two of the bands there is one moving away from the other to allow a new band to pass through i have a second in which to act the vishanti be praised i've done it one of the things i just really love about this epic is how much strange has to rely on good old-fashioned know-how and physical means to get done what he has to do and this is one of the best strange is like what am i gonna do magic eyes in my house he's keeping me out magically and then he sees a costume shop where they sell a apparently crazy wizard costume. And he's like, yes, I'll buy one of your crazy wizard costumes, please. And then he dresses up as a crazy wizard who seems to be shorter than Doctor Strange, which is a little strange. But then he bangs on his own door and says, open up, Doctor Strange. I know you're in there. I saw a light at one of your windows. I've come to challenge you to match my magic powers against yours. 
guy inside is like, uh, some costumed oaf who cannot suspect what he's blundering into stands outside. I must dispose of him at once. Then Dr. Strange, pretending to be a crank, is angrily demanding to meet Dr. Strange. And while the other guy is trying to like just deal with him, Dr. Strange then turns around, just clocks him, punches him out, and then runs in. He then finds what I think is usually seen as the orb of Avamato, because I think the thing yes. that Dr. Strange has in his chest is usually called the eye of Avamato, but Lee seems to get confused here because then he calls the I don't thing... think they've really solidified that yet. But yeah. yes, I, eventually that is what they settle on, but at this point they, they haven't really yeah, solidified that. But uh, then Dr. Strange looks into his orb, but it's been booby-trapped by Baron Mordo, who is talking to Dormammu on his little Zoom call there. And this is the first time we've met any resident of the Dark Dimension besides just Clea and Dormammu. We see Clea just sort of in an actual, like, house talking to somebody. She is worried about Dr. Strange, of course. Baron Mordo shows up to confront Dr. Strange. They have a big light show where they shoot lights at each other for several pages, including the panel that was snipped to be used on the cover. Dormammu realizes in order to win, he's just going to have to completely take over Baron Mordo and attack Strange with all of his might. And Dr. Strange finally catches on to what's going on. He's like, Mordo, you've changed in that voice. I've heard it before, but where, where? Of course, of course, I should have guessed. I should have known. And just before Dr. Strange can presumably announce, you've been taken over by Dormammu, he is knocked out and goes into the swirling Stygian void. And that is the big cliffhanger on this issue. This is an awesome issue. I love it. I love the plotting. I love the idea that he has to dress up as a crank in order to get into his own house. I love the noirish atmosphere. I love everything about this issue. It is one of my all-time favorites. Yeah, it's great. Uh, But one thing I will say is there are a couple of panels in here, like a a few of them scattered throughout, that almost look like Gil Kane to me. And, you know, this is probably one of the things that's just complete coincidence, but, you know, you never know who, you know, these, it was an insular world of various comics artists in New York back in those days. So who knows? But on page four, uh, one of the pictures of Doctor Strange in his crazy wizard outfit looks very Gil Kane to me. And then the first panel on the next page, page five, he also looks very similar. Yeah. Once again, this is probably just me looking at things and reading things into it. but. Uh, who knows? But that's it. Good half of an issue. <laughs> yes. This uh, half the book is worth the 12 cents. Yes. Uh, this half the book is worth $12. That uh, more than makes up for the fact that uh, the first half of the book is not worth the six cents it cost, or indeed even one sixth of a cent. And one should note that in the back, Stanley does not have any complaints about the second half of the book. He does not go like, by the way, the second half of the book sucks too. This all sucks. <laughs> Why am I doing this? This thing's a, I'm I'm ruling over an empire of crap. <laughs> All right. So uh, I guess that this is where we need to um, pretend to everybody like we are going to be saying goodbye to each other and then coming back later to record the next episode, but shall actually just be continuing momentarily. Yes. So that is this episode. Those were four good issues of comics or three and a half good issues of comics. And I think that this was a lot of fun. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you, everybody. As always, stay safe out there and we look forward to seeing you again. Okay. Bye, guys. Take care. Thanks for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews and ratings are a great help and always appreciated. We love hearing from you. Go to marvelrereadclub.com to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. 
We're also on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time.